God, our Father, Lord, we are grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us. We thank you, dear Lord, for the cross of our Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we are so grateful for the salvation that you have granted to us. We thank you, God, that you have overcome sin and death and hell. And that, Lord, you have delivered us from the slavery to sin and made us to be sons in your house. We thank you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and how you are fashioning us after your character and conforming us so that we become more and more like Jesus. And Lord, we want to be like you. And so we ask today that as we look into your word that you would feed our souls with heavenly food. Lord, that you would strengthen our inner man. That you would open our eyes to see who you are and what your purposes are in the world and help us, God, to see our great purpose in the world as your elect people. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here and to freely study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so then. I was away at Shepherd's Conference all week, this week, and uh, it was a major blessing. So I, I, I come back from Shepherd's Conference and I'm so spiritually full, <laughs> I feel like I can hardly even preach or teach. It's, it's kind of a strange thing. You would think I'd come back like a fireball or something, but, but uh, it's kind of like uh, truth overload. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, here we are in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week we made it through verse 8. This morning we'll be picking up at verse 9 and following, which is at the bottom of your handouts, uh, page number 43. And uh, I'll just begin reading there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and following. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own, with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So then, here Paul writes, and he, if you will, transitions from his discussion about sanctification and his discussion about uh, particularly abstaining from sexual immorality and uh, talking about that whole issue which was so important to the Thessalonians. He now kind of shifts and uh, begins a few other closing comments. Remember that back in chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, 
there he kind of shifts and he begins to say finally and he begins to open up with his closing comments closing comments where really he's going to deal with three important issues actually in chapter four the, all three of those important issues come right to the surface and, and really these are the issues that are key to Paul's uh, uh, letter to the Thessalonians and those are the issues of their sanctification related to sexual immorality, the issues of them working, not being idle, and um, and not relying on other Christians who are working. <laughs> this is uh, a theme in both Thessalonian letters. But then also <clears throat> the issues regarding the second coming of Christ and issues related to the resurrection. Those are all kind of eschatological issues together. So those three things, the abstaining from sexual immorality, they're working hard with their own hands, and the uh, second coming of Christ as it relates to the resurrection are really the three most important issues that Paul is dealing with with the Thessalonians. And they're all right here in this chapter. So when he, when he says finally in verse 1 of chapter 4, He's going to kind of shift and he's going to lay down these, I think, really their answers to questions that the Thessalonians were asking when Timothy was there and wanting some real clarification. And so Paul is going to uh, uh, write those down, very specifically addressing those issues. And one thing I want to remind you of is how Paul has been building uh, an expectation in them through the letter concerning his coming, concerning Christ's second coming. And in Paul's letter, of course, it's referred to as the parousia. But it, there's, a, there's a, a mention of this coming at the end of every chapter. And then when he gets to chapter 4, when he goes to mention it, he actually gives his discourse on it. And uh, that discourse starts in chapter 4, verse 15, and it ends in chapter 5, verse 10. So there's quite a few verses there where Paul is giving instruction about the parousia, about the second coming. And, um, and so that expectation that he's kind of been building in, in his hearers, he's going to address in this chapter in, in the coming verses. Um, so here he is. Um, he's dealt with the issue of Christians absolutely staining, abstaining from sexual immorality. And... Um, he shifts now and he, he begins to focus on this issue of love and also the issue of them uh, working, if you will. And uh, he doesn't say a whole lot about it here, but he does say a whole lot about it in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, um, which hopefully we'll be into next year sometime. But, um, or should I say next uh, session? Um so I intend to end the end of this year in May uh, in First Thessalonians and start again in September in Second Thessalonians. That's what I mean by that. So then looking at verse 9, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. The word here translated, love of the brethren, is in fact the one Greek word, Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. 
Now, you may have heard the city of Philadelphia called the city of brotherly love. Maybe you didn't know that that's because that is a Greek word that means exactly that. It means brotherly love. You know that in the Greek language there are three kinds of love. There are, there are three different words describing three different kinds of love. Whereas in our English language, we really only have one word. Uh, and of course, we, we throw the term around very loosely, love. We, we use that term when we talk about um, uh, the kind of love that is uh, between a husband and a wife. We use that word when we talk about the kind of love that's between a mother and a child. And we use that love when we talk about the love that's between God and the people that he loves. And, and nevertheless, the Greek has three different words for that. And so those three words are, of course, the word agape, right, which is the divine kind of love, which is God's character in nature. Then secondly, the word Philadelphia is the kind of love that you have with a friend or a brother, and that is um, uh, the word Philadelphia. And then also the Greek word eros is the word that speaks for a sensual kind of love. And so, uh, if you will, three different Greek words for three different kinds of love. Well, here, when Paul says, now as to the love of the brethren, he's talking specifically about this kind of brotherly love that you have with your family or with your friends. And uh, so he's targeting that specifically, and that's brought out when the translators use four words to translate that one Greek word. They say, love of the brethren. So here's one of those things you see in translations that you may not be aware of, but here's where it takes four English words to translate one Greek word because of what's implied in, in, in the Greek uh, there. So if you will, as to the love of the brethren, it is, a, it is that special love that exists between Christians, and it is this love that Paul tells the Thessalonians that you have no need for anyone to write to you. By this, Paul means to say that he has written and instructed them on many things, but on this matter he need not do so, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. His point is that they are already accomplished in this area of Christian life, and he points this out when he says, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Obviously, they were actively meeting the needs of others in the surrounding province and exercising love to such degree that it was well known. And, of course, we know this already, right, from Paul's record in, in uh, chapter 1, where he's describing their efforts um, uh, with all of the brothers in their entire province. So they have learned from God in this matter of brotherly love and are now practicing it, Yet Paul exhorts them to further growth, stating, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still the more. Now this is one of those things where <clears throat> I want to kind of remind you of this. Paul really doesn't have much correction for the Thessalonian church. Instead, what he has is commendation. Because they had become such good imitators of everything that Paul had taught them when he was there. And so one of the things that he does as to not give them too big of a head, right, is he exhorts them to further obedience by commendation. So if you will, he's commending them and he's saying, you, 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 you guys are doing a great job preaching the gospel. Nevertheless, 
I want you to excel still the more, right? And here, he says, you're doing a wonderful job loving the brothers. However, right, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And so even though he's not correcting them, he's still yet encouraging and exhorting them to press on. And so if you will, there is a, there is a truth for the Christian life that's bound up in this. And what is it? It's this truth, that no matter how far that we have come, right, we are never satisfied with the growth that we have made until we are like Christ. Amen? Which isn't going to happen this side of the resurrection. (laughs) So we're always pressing on. We're always moving on toward the heavenly call. We're always moving on and pressing on to become more and more like Christ. We're always seeking to be more loving, more kind, more gracious, more wise. Amen? And so the Christian has a purpose in everything they do. We're never without purpose. We're never without focus. We're never without goal or objective, are we? Our life is filled with purpose at all times. And so, if you will, Paul is urging these obedient, loving Christians to be more obedient and more loving. Amen? even as he's commended them that they are practicing this love toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. He's saying, you Thessalonians in that, in that city of Thessalonica are loving all the brothers in the whole province of Macedonia. You'll remember that they went out and they actually evangelized the whole province of Macedonia. Well, consider then that the brethren that are there are the fruits of their evangelistic labors, Right? More than that, consider that all those new Christians in Macedonia, that's quite a bit of work to do. (laughs) And so there's a real occasion here, if you kind of think this thing through. There's a real occasion for ministry that's being poured out from the Thessalonian church to all of these converts that they have in the province of Macedonia. It's a big place. And not only is it a big place, but they have evangelized the entire place. And so they are there expressing their love by way of discipleship and and establishing churches in in the whole province of Macedonia. And this must be a huge sacrificial effort on the part of these Thessalonian Christians. Can you see that? Can you imagine what it would be like, say, if our little church somehow evangelized the whole state of New Mexico? And and that was in the the first year in which we had done that. Here we are trying to sustain and establish and disciple and strengthen those churches. What kind of an effort that must look like from us? Well, if you will, that's kind of what was going on there. So it kind of opens your eyes to really the remarkable thing that has taken place there. Uh, Nevertheless, Paul commends them that they are, in fact, practicing this brotherly love to all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. And yet he still tells them, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. As it is with all virtue, Christians are to always and continually be striving to excel so that their life becomes one of a constant display of Christ's character and virtue. This is the second time in this chapter, see verse 1, that Paul has commended them for their godliness and yet on both accounts says, We urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Let us mark this idea well, that no matter how far we come as Christians, 
Let us continue to pursue that upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's a lesson to learn here. No matter how well we are doing and how much we are to be commended, we are urged to excel still more. Amen? And so uh, then, um, picking up in verse 11, he says, Not only uh, are you loving and I want you to excel, he says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Here Paul instructs them as to their conduct in daily life and interaction with others, including unbelievers. When he says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business, he refers to that good conduct of a Christian whereby they avoid meddling in the affairs of others and submissively follow the laws of society, being at peace with all men. Think about this. Think about this instruction that Paul is giving to this church. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business. In other words, you Christians mind your own business. Boy, how we could learn that lesson. Would you agree? How little we are instructed in this matter. That we ought to mind our own business. You know what that means, right? Pay attention to your own stuff. And not so much the stuff of everybody else. Right? A quiet life. Think how how Paul is kind of running these things together. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. You think about people like that. You think about people of character, don't you? You think about the hard-working quiet farmer who does his own thing and would give you the shirt off his back if you were in need, right? And uh, he's uh, rarely at the town hall meeting (laughs) pointing the finger at others and condemning others, amen? No, instead he lives a, a quiet life. He works hard with his own hands and he minds his own business. And his life is a model to others. Amen? You kind of get this sense from what Paul is saying. Barnes comments on this passage and he says this, Orderly, peaceful, living in the practice of the calm virtues of life. The duty to which he would exhort them was that of being subordinate to the laws and avoiding all tumult and disorder, of calmly pursuing their regular avocations and of keeping themselves from all the assemblages of the idle, the restless, and the dissatisfied. No Christian should be engaged in a mob. None should be identified with the popular excitements which lead to disorder and to the disregard of the laws. Christian is to lead an orderly life. Amen? A lawful life. Submissive to the governing authorities. Amen? Not involved in a mob. Not out to lynch anybody. Amen? 
neither with their hands or with their mouth. Amen? <clears throat> Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Good. God help me to live it and not just preach it. Amen? To this quiet life, Paul adds that they should work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Here he reminds them of a command he had earlier given that they should work with their hands. You see, he says that you should work with your hands just as we commanded you. So what Paul is saying here was that in his original discipling effort and establishing of that church, one of the things he taught them was, you Christians are to work with your own hands. And as in Paul's teaching, the uh, goal of that was so that they would not be in any need, but would have an abundance to share with others. And uh, if you will, this is something he had already taught them, but here he reminds them again. He reminds them of a command he had earlier given them to work with their own hands. By this he means work in gainful employment so that they are able to provide for themselves and not be a burden on others who are so dutifully employed. This has long been a Christian standard. Christians are not to be bums, living off the hard work of others, but rather those who work hard and earn their own living and provide for the needs of others as well. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4 and 28, he says this, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. You see, this is a Christian virtue and a Christian standard. It is the instruction of the apostles to us after the Judeo ethic. Okay, That is that you work hard that you're diligent in your work, that you work hard and you produce bread from the ground for your family, and that you're not dependent on others for your own substance, but instead you care for your own. Amen? That's a, an Old Testament biblical idea that is scattered all through the Old Testament, uh, but very specifically in the book of Proverbs, where we get a lot of instruction about wisdom. And in the Proverbs, there is a theme of diligence and hard work. And uh, if you will, that's the Judeo ethic that I point to when I speak of what Paul is saying. Christians are not to be living off of the work of others. They are to be living off of their own labors. They are to be gainfully employed, which means that they work and they produce so much so that they have an abundance so that they can share with those who are in need. Amen? Imagine what society would be like if everyone in the whole society was able to produce to whatever their ability or capacity, so much so that everyone had an abundance and enough to share. Not only that, was actually motivated to share and was sharing. We wouldn't have a hungry person on the planet. Right? Not so with this fallen world. Right? But coming real soon when the Lord Jesus shows up. Ain't going to be a hungry, a hungry belly on the whole planet. 
<laughs> or retirement homes. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Well, I guess when a guy dies at 100 in the millennium, he's thought to be a babe. Says Isaiah 65. What is it? Verse 19. Okay, well then, so Christians are to live a disciplined life of hard work that produces an abundance. They are not to go about life meddling in the affairs of others as gossips or busybodies, but rather to mind their own business and work with their hands in order to have something to share with the needy. Now, Paul brings this up again in 2 Thessalonians. This was obviously a problem in the, in the church at Thessalonica. Okay? 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 and 12, he writes, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Look what he says here. In chapter 1, verse uh, 11, he says, Work with your hands. And in verse 12, he says, So that you won't be in any need. What's he implying there? That you won't be in need in having to what? Live off of the work of others. In 2 Thessalonians, he makes this much more clear. He says, Work in a quiet fashion and eat your own bread. In other words, don't be eating other people's bread. Amen? So, if you will, this is a standard for Christians. Paul is saying, you're not to be idle. Right? Idleness is what? The devil's playground. Right? You got nothing to do, what do you do? Look for trouble. It's like the kids in the late afternoon torturing the cat. Right? You with me? Got nothing to do. What shall we do? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the mind runs away, doesn't it? If you stay busy working hard, you won't have time to get in trouble. Amen? And if you're anything like me, if you got too much time, you'll be in trouble. <laughs> Moreover, this work ethic is one that shows properly God's gracious character to the fallen world of unbelievers around us who are here called outsiders. This is an interesting term that Paul uses to speak about unbelievers. He calls them outsiders. When a Christian works hard, minds his or her own business, and leads a quiet, orderly life, he glorifies God, and by this activity behaves properly toward outsiders by not being in any need. Proverbs 21, 25, and 26 says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. You see the contrast there? The contrast is between the sluggard and the righteous. What does the sluggard do? He refuses to work, so all day long he craves. In contrast to the righteous who gives and does not hold back. Why? Because he's not in any need. Why? Because he works hard with his own hands. Amen? Of course, that's a theme in the Proverbs. Nevertheless, here Paul is teaching the Christians the same. 
He goes on, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So now he transitions, if you will, into his eschatology. And he's going to begin talking about um, matters of life and death and resurrection and matters of the end times. And so he shifts in this argument to deal at first with an obvious question that they have. And that's dealing with the nature of Christians who have died. Okay, But as is common in the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't refer to Christians as dying. The New Testament refers to Christians as falling asleep. And, uh, of course, it's obvious what's implied there, right? We don't want to use the word death with Christians. Why? Because we have entered life eternal. We have passed from death into life. Amen? And we will, what? Never die. Isn't this what Jesus said? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Right? One of the few references in all of Scripture where a a Christian, if you will, is said to die. Look it up. It's an interesting thing. If you have a concordance, look up the word asleep. You'd be surprised to find out how often and by how many writers and in how many places this idea or this concept of falling asleep is actually being used. It's not just in Paul's writings. It's also in the Gospels. It's in Luke's writing in Acts. And um, also Peter. Uh, makes a reference to the same thing. Um, But here, Paul is specifically wanting to answer some questions that they have. And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Here, Paul shifts his argument to obviously instruct them in an area of doctrine of which they were earlier confused or had received insufficient instruction, thus his statement, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Now, here he's saying, look, We don't want you to to not know. We want you to know the truth about these things. So I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give them to you in writing. The Thessalonians no doubt had many theological questions for Timothy upon his visit, many of which were obviously relayed to Paul, which he addresses in these Thessalonian letters. It is clear from this verse and others like it that Paul is answering questions or giving more complete framework to doctrinal issues that were of interest to them. At the top of this list were the eschatological issues of the state of believers who die and the second coming of Christ, issues which Paul answers in detail from here to the end of the letter. Now, of those Christians who have died, he comments about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. We know for sure that these are Christians who have died because verse 15 contrasts these with those who are alive. In other words, you know, Paul's going to begin to kind of talk about this whole thing in the following verses. And in his discussion in verse 15, he makes a contrast between those who are asleep and those who are alive. Okay? He also says further that these who are asleep are the dead in Christ. Okay? So, um, 
It is, an interesting, it is interesting to note that this is very common in the New Testament, which often speaks of Christians who die as those who have fallen asleep. Moreover, these are held in this verse in contrast to the rest who have no hope. The contrast is that Christians who die will certainly be reunited with their Christian loved ones at Christ's second coming, verse 14. Therefore, we do not grieve with unending sorrow as the rest who have no hope, a reference no doubt to unbelievers who do not possess the Christian hope of the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul's point is, there's another little contrast here, right? The Christians who uh, have lost their loved ones, who are Christians, right? Versus what? The rest who have no hope. In other words, if you're not a Christian, you don't have the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You don't have a risen Savior and Lord who's conquered death and hell, who has paid the debt for all of your sins so that you have to never die. That's something that only comes uniquely through the cross of Christ and through trust in Him. Amen? Everyone else in the world, let me tell you, is, has no hope. They have no hope of the resurrection. Even though many, and it's very common in our culture, for many to claim that hope. They have no basis on which to claim it if they don't claim it on the basis of Christ's merit at the cross. Amen? And so it's very common for people in our day and age to kind of mingle the Christian idea, right, with their postmodern life, thinking that somehow they have some hope beyond the grave, not realizing that that hope only comes through Christ. Amen? Nevertheless, in the teaching of the Bible, it's very clear that those who are of Christ and who are in Christ do have the hope of a resurrection from the dead. Right? This is, of course, Paul's very clear point in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, all the Christians who have died, guess what? When Jesus comes again, they're going to be with him. That's what Paul is saying. Amen? You see how clear that is? Okay. That, of course, in contrast to those who grieve because, because they don't have any hope. They have no hope. Instead, we living Christians do have the hope that we'll surely be reunited with Christians who are asleep. And this hope reassures us so that you will not grieve as do the rest. You see, Christians grieve when their loved ones pass away. But they don't grieve with unending sorrow like those who have no hope. They don't grieve with sorrow as if they will never again see those who are in Christ who have passed away. This is one of the great hopes that we have in the resurrection. Amen? Amen. That, that we're, we're going to receive an immortal body that shall never die. And we are going to be united again to those Christians who have passed away. This is, in fact, what it means that we have eternal life. Amen? It's very interesting, this idea that, you know, we we have passed from death to life, yet we still live in a mortal body. But it's also very interesting how the New Testament addresses that, saying that when we actually die, it uses this euphemism that we refer to as falling asleep. Think about the the purpose 
of God, the Holy Spirit, in Scripture, referring to the death of Christian believers as those who fall asleep. What what is being implied? Right, right, that they'll wake up, that it's not death. You know why, right? Because death fundamentally is what? Somebody tell me. Separation from God. Death is not the passing of the mortal body. That's physical death, and that's what we in in the world refer to as death. Okay? But spiritual death is a far greater reality in the Scripture. Right? And that death is what? Separation from God. That is a death that all humans are subject to from birth. Why? Because of sin. Because the wages of sin is death right now when we say the wages of sin is death what are we talking about we're talking about physical death and spiritual death right the one which is a type and a shadow of the greater are you with me so physical death decay the death of the mortal body is but a small type and shadow of what the decay of being separated from the good presence of God forever and ever. Right? Of course, this is fundamental to the teaching of the Bible. This is the reason why Jesus had to come and die. So that he could pay the penalty for our sins. So that our sins could be forgiven. So that God would not hold the penalty of death against us. Right? To bring us to God, to bring us and restore our relationship to God, so that what? So that we could live forever and not die. So that we could live forever in His presence and not be eternally separated from Him. Okay? You see, this is what happens to people who die apart from Christ. Let me point you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn there, please. Where do we get this idea in Scripture that death is separation from God? It's in Second Thessalonians chapter one, right? I'm going to start back in verse seven to give you a little bit of context. He's talking about the second coming of Christ here also, and and he's talking about what happens to believers and unbelievers at the second coming of Christ. Verse 7, he says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So Paul has a contrast between believers and unbelievers and what happens to them at the second coming of Christ, right? To the believer, what happens? Well, they, uh, he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You see, The saints are going to go marching in on that day. They're going to go marching into what? Eternal glory in the presence of God forever. 
right? As compared to what happens to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, verse 8, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, what? Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Understand? This is what death is. Death is the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's what the imagery of hell is. In the Bible, it's called the lake of fire. Actually, hell itself, which is the temporary abode of the wicked dead, hell itself gets thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 20, verse, what is it, 15. And so, so that um, it's seen, if you will, as a place of eternal destruction. The idea of, of fire is that it's being eternally destroyed, right? But uh, the idea, of course, the imagery throughout Scripture is that of a bottomless pit. That, that just descends forever and ever and ever, further and further from the height of God and His glory. And it's not that God's presence isn't there. I was having this discussion with somebody recently who was asking me this question. Well, how could we be away from the presence of the Lord? Isn't He omnipresent? Have you thought about that? Let's think about it just for a minute. Let's talk about it. God is omnipresent. What does that mean? He's everywhere present all the time. Right? If I ascend to the height of heaven, behold, thou art there. If I ascend to the depth of Sheol, behold, thou art there. Thy right hand will lead me. Right? So, God is even in hell. Is He not? He is. But what's not there is His good presence to bless and the glory of His power, Paul says. You see, they're separated away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In other words, they're shut out from the good presence of God. It's not that God doesn't have some kind of presence there. Surely He does. I was at the Shepherds Conference this week, and a man was preaching on the sovereignty of God. And he was saying how Satan isn't the captain of hell. And don't think for one minute that he is. God's in charge of hell. God's the one who created hell. Hell exists for God's purposes. God is the one who made it. And he made it to burn Satan there forever. That's what the scripture says. It was created for the devil and his angels. Amen? So, I'm just trying to address this idea of understanding what death is. Death is a separation from everything that is good. Because you see, when you're in the presence of God, when you have passed from this mortal body into an imperishable and immortal body, you will now be in the presence of God forever. Okay? And in that presence, listen, there's no more mourning or dying or crying or pain. Right? Because everything that was in the fallen world is destroyed by God. What happens at the end, you can read the, the end of Revelation 20. Basically what happens is, God consummates the ages. He destroys the present heavens and the earth, which is a fulfillment of the day of the Lord prophecies. Okay, he says, And I saw a great white throne, from whose presence what? 
Heaven and earth fled, and there was no place for them. Right? Then there's four or five verses talking about the great white throne judgment. And then Revelation 21, verse 1. What? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven had passed away. For the former heaven and earth had passed away. Right? And so God destroys the present heaven and earth, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. So everything of that former world that was fallen, that was corrupted, that was in bondage to decay, God throws in the lake of fire forever. And in that place it is separated, excuse me, forever. And uh, um, anything that is in there is separated from the good presence of God forever. These are the scriptures where this becomes very clear to us. Okay, I'm also referring to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Go read it. Think about it in light of the things that we have said here. And we're going to learn much more about it when we get to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to take this apart. And we're going to understand how the rest of the Bible relates to this text of Scripture. Okay. Um, so, nevertheless, what we're saying is, is that those who grieve, who have no hope, right? Grieve, why? Because they're never again going to be reunited. They don't have the hope of the resurrection of the dead. They don't have the hope that they're going to be reunited to glory and privilege and blessing and relationship. You understand? Hell is a very lonely place. People aren't going to go there to party with their friends. It's going to be blackest darkness. Jesus says it's outer darkness where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. There's no happiness there. There's no embrace of relationship with loved ones. And if you want to grieve about something, let me tell you, it is a grievous thing to even consider. It is repulsive to the soul of man. Is it not? You think of all of the things that you could imagine as horrific and awful. Let me tell you, you haven't touched the surface of what it will be like. And it doesn't end next week, next month, next year, next decade, next century, next millennia. Let me tell you, when 10,000 years have passed by, one day is the same as the first day you arrived. Without any hope. Here's the thing about hell. It's final. When you finally meet your Maker, you will either be there, covered in the righteousness of Christ, or you will stand there with a life full of sins, guilty before the Almighty God. And he's already warned. (laughs) He's already warned of his judgments, has he not? He has made it crystal clear how anyone can be saved by simply trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for their righteousness. He, he, He has made it as easy as it can possibly be for man to be saved. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen? So that men are without excuse for rejecting Christ. When God freely receives them, come and take freely of the water of life. Why shall you die when God offers life? 
Amen? It's an amazing thing. The depravity of sin is utterly amazing. Is it not? That we would reject such a free offer with abundant evidence all around us of how horrific death is. Man has been trying to escape the grave ever since he's been on the earth. And he hasn't found a way yet, has he? He ain't gonna. Right? When God has freely made the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Amen? Couldn't be more clear. Couldn't be more clear. Furthermore, those who have this hope, listen, we don't have to grieve like the rest. We're going to see our, our Christian loved ones. We're going to see them. We're going to see them again. And I don't know about you, but I want every one of my loved ones to be there. There's only one way for that to happen. <laughs> for them to have the same hope I have. In the same risen Lord. Amen. Dear Christian, take hope from this verse that every Christian friend or relative that you have ever had or will have who dies will certainly see you again at the second coming of Christ. And you shall never again be cut off from fellowship forever and ever, world without end. This is common in the New Testament. Here are a few passages. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 and following. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father. And when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. You understand? He's saying, look, in Christ all shall be made alive, right? But how? Each in his own order, right? Christ was the first fruits from the dead, right? Then those who are Christ's at his coming. You see, it's all who are in Christ. Those who are Christ's at his coming. Those who are going to be made alive. In their order. What is their order? At his coming. When is it going to happen? Here's another thought to consider. When does this resurrection take place? At his coming. That's when the resurrection is, family. Second Corinthians 4, uh, 14 and following. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. You see what Paul is saying? Very clear, crystal clear, right? That God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will do what? Will raise us also with Jesus, that is, Paul and the apostles, right? And will present us with you, Christians, who, to whom I'm writing the letter, right? How about 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4? For we know, who knows? We who? We Christians, specifically Corinthian Christians. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we have put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What's the deal? Well, if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have what? A building from God not made with hands, listen, eternal in the heavens. An immortal, imperishable body. Amen? That's what Paul is referring to. This is not only repeated in many New Testament passages, but is the main focus of Paul's detailed explanation of the second coming in verses 15 through 17, where in verse 17 he speaks explicitly of the reuniting. He says, We who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. You understand Paul's argument? Think about it. He's saying here, verse 14, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, right? Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, right? And then he goes on, he says, For according to the Lord's own word, right? We, we who are alive will certainly not precede those who have, have died, right? But what will happen? The dead in Christ shall rise first. Right? And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet them together with the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Amen. You understand what he's saying? He's saying we Christians who are alive at the coming of Christ are going to be caught up and meet the dead in Christ who rise first before us. Right? And, and meet them in the Lord, with the Lord together in the air. Here's the deal. Okay, the deal is when Christ returns, he raises the dead in Christ first. The living Christians who are alive at that time are caught up to meet them in the air. Okay, this is Paul's point. What? We're going to be reunited. We're going to be reunited with our Christian loved ones. When? At his coming. That's when. Okay, this is one of the things that the Lord does at His coming, which are many. He does many things. (laughs) Okay, one of them is, I think, the first order of business, (laughs) the dead in Christ shall rise first. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. You understand? Once you are in glory with Christ, listen, He transforms your earthly body to be a glorified, immortal, imperishable body, and so you shall be with the Lord forever. Amen? No longer subject to sin or death. Blessed and holy, Revelation 20, right? Is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over him, what? The second death has no power. Amen? Okay. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Note well the reason for our hope. Jesus died and rose again. We Christians, in fact, believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this is our great assurance that he has conquered the grave. Paul's point is this. 
If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then, even so, in the same manner, we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is Paul's instruction to the young Christians about a vital Christian truth concerning the resurrection of the dead. Notice, it is the Father's plan, and I add, or decree. God will bring with him, that is Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Listen, God will bring with Christ those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The reuniting of Christian believers of all ages is the eternal decree of God, which has been his plan for us from before the beginning of time, a fact clear from his omniscience. Here's what I'm saying. Listen, if the Bible says that God is going to bring Christians who have died together to meet the Lord Jesus, okay, that that is in fact something that is going to happen in future history. You must understand that that has been God's plan from before the beginning of time. How do we know that? Because before the beginning of time, God knew the whole record of history before it ever happened. In fact, he planned it. Not only did he plan it, he what? Decreed that it should be. You understand? And in the course of history, he did not move to prevent, right? But in fact, brought to pass by a mighty providence everything that happens in the course of history. Are you with me? Listen, God's not surprised by anything. Nothing. Zero. Zip. God has ordained from before the creation of the world every single thing that ever happens in the history of the universe. He's ordained it. He's decreed that it should exist. He made the world for the purposes which he is now carrying out in his world. That's, that's absolute, family. That's not some gray matter. Okay? Listen, if, I'll, just, I'll give you another practical example of providence. I'm running out of time. I guess we'll end here. In 2001, some crazy terrorists flew some planes into couple of buildings in New York City, huge buildings, killed thousands of people, created a massive destruction. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Could God have prevented that from happening? Yes, of course. A thousand ways to Sunday, right? <clears throat> Did God prevent it from happening? Did he then and therefore ordain that it should come to pass? Doesn't mean that God approved of the evil that took place. It simply means that he used the evil that took place by the choices of free moral agents to bring to pass his eternal purpose, which are many and manifold. <laughs> right? You understand how providence works? There's all these things at work. Okay? Nevertheless, God is God, and he's in heaven, and he's on the throne. And nothing happens in his world apart from his decree. That's what the Bible says again and again and again. We call it the problem of evil. It's difficult to understand. Since God himself never carries out any kind of evil, he cannot. He's God. Amen? Nevertheless, he's ordained and created a world where evil is thriving and flourishing. How do we answer that question? Well, here's how we answer it. God is using evil to accomplish his glorious ends, whatever they may be. Understand? 
And now you're all, now you want to chase providence. And I'm with you. I want to chase it too. But, but, uh, um, uh, that lesson takes many weeks. <laughs> right. Well, it's all on record. It's all on record. You can go back and learn about it. So, before we end, I just want to exhort you to do this, okay? I provided some, some of our uh, preparatory reading. I want you to start reading this. Start reading this again, okay? And real quick, here's terms you need to know. Amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, okay? You need to know what those are. They're going to make a big difference as we start talking about the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. Okay? So, you can learn about those things primarily in the passage in Revelation chapter 20. Okay? But I've also given you handouts that describe what they are. I've sent emails about it. If you need any more of that stuff or you lost it, email me. I'll send it to you. And I gave you these two charts. I gave you these two charts that basically both of them are going to talk about premillennialism, okay? And on these two charts, um, most of the views of the timing of the rapture are portrayed in these charts. So if you, under, if you understand this, premillennialism is this, this whole view of the end times. And there's these three little variations of premillennialism, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or pre-wrath, okay, there's four there. Um, those are little variations, but premillennialism, by and large, is agreed on this whole thing. Are you with me? We're just arguing about one little thing. It's actually a big thing. Nevertheless, we're arguing about this point of doctrine, okay? What I'm trying to say is premillennialists have far more in common than they do in difference, okay? You need to understand that. I want you to understand that clearly. I'm going to be emphasizing that. And then on the back side of that, um, there's a, kind of a little bit different portrayal of the same things. What I want you to see is pull these charts out, get your Bible out, and read the scripture references with each box and consider how they fall into the order of time. I want you to do that. You need to do that if you want to understand these things. Okay? Specifically on the chart that says premillennialism, there's a whole list of scriptures there talking about the rapture and the resurrection. You need to be familiar with those scriptures in, in order to understand all the different points that come out of those scriptures. Okay? So get your Bible out, get the chart out, read the scriptures and look at the chart. Okay? That ought to make all kinds of good questions that you can ask. And I promise we'll have, we'll have a lot of Q&A coming up in the following weeks. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your kindness and your love to us. We thank you for the privilege of the great hope that we have, God. That, Lord, even though we die, yet shall we live. Because Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Our hopes, our heart is filled with this hope and with the joy of the soon coming of our Lord. God, we look forward to his kingdom. We look forward when you will come and you will destroy evil, God. And the only thing that will live will be righteousness and peace and joy forever in your presence. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen.